0: The scripture today is Luke one thirty nine through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, It's good to see so many of you here this morning as we continue uh, in our Advent series in the Gospel of Luke. It always feels like something changes when we light the pink candle. It means we're getting close to Christmas. And indeed we are. Uh, The theme that we've been looking at, if you haven't figured it out by now because of how much we've talked about it even in this service, is the theme of these first couple of chapters in Luke's Gospel, and that is joy. And, And the reason that we want to spend some time talking about joy is because so many of us struggle with it. And I'm not talking about sanguine joy versus melancholy lack of joy, or extroverted party animal joy versus introverted wallflower lack of joy. This is supernatural joy. Uh, That can be yours no matter what temperament or personality uh, you might be. Nor are we talking about that there are very real causes for depression and anxiety and these sorts of things. But the promise of these scriptures to us, no matter what state we find ourselves in, is that the coming of of Jesus Christ into the world uh, is a cause for great rejoicing among us. And it can bring joy. And so we're spending the four weeks of Advent talking about it. Now, uh, I I love this passage. This is such a neat story. Uh, when Ashley was pregnant with our kids, she's petite, and uh, we had rather large children, and so uh, babies, the, when they came out, they were big. And so uh, when they would get to moving around in her stomach, it would it would, uh, was really noticeable and fun. And so I remember sitting on the couch, you know, multiple times together, watching the kids squirm around, and here would come a hand, literally. I mean, it looked like, you know, it was like, oh, that I, it just made me kind of like, <laughs> that looks like it hurts, Right? That's, that's a man's reaction to that stuff at first. And then here would come a foot, you know, and you're thinking, how in the world is that going on? But my favorite thing of all would be how responsive they would be to my voice. So I would get to talking to them or, or whatever it might be. And, and, when, and when I got near them and I began to talk, they started going crazy in there. Like they recognized my voice. Now, I like to think uh, that just like I, their father, loved them even before I knew them that they loved me even before they knew me too. And so they they reacted to the sound of my voice when I started talking. It woke them up and they started moving around in there. Now something like that is recorded in this text and it makes me smile. Really, it makes me worship. The angel Gabriel tells Mary that her cousin, Elizabeth, who has been... um, barren her entire life, is going to have a child. Mary immediately, we're told with haste, verse 39, goes, leaves to go visit with her cousin. And when she walks in the door and Elizabeth hears her voice, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leapt with joy. Now try to wrap your mind around that for a minute. This is just days after Mary's conception. Now, think about this. The Lord Jesus Christ, God of very God, is just a tiny embryo in Mary's womb. And yet, when John, still in his mother's womb, too, hears Mary's voice, and when he gets in close proximity to his Lord, he comes alive and begins to leap with joy. He comes awake in Elizabeth's belly and we're told multiple times this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. That's in chapter 1, verse 15. And here, we're told in verse 41, the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth. And so, the lesson is this, that joy at Jesus' coming should be reflexive. It, I mean, it's so obvious, so natural a response that even the unborn child John experiences it. And he leaps for joy inside of his mother's womb Almost as if he loved his Lord even before he knew him. Or maybe it's even deeper than that. Almost as if he knew him and loved him and recognized him even before he had met him. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. This picture of John leaping for joy in Elizabeth's womb in the presence of his Lord. How do we get that kind of reflexive, natural joy? John hears Mary's voice. And comes awake, he starts jumping around inside of his mom. He gets near to Jesus, and there's this almost automated response of joy. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when you're full of the Holy Spirit, when you're walking in the Spirit, you know it because there's joy. And so let's look uh, at some of the details in this text, and even beyond it actually to John the Baptist and some other places. But I want you to see First John's joy, even in his mother's womb. His joy even in his mother's womb. Secondly, I want you to see the reason for his joy, even in his mother's womb. And then thirdly, how we can get the same joy that John had. So let's look at John's joy. Let's look at the reason for his joy. And then let's look at how we might get it as well. Okay, first, I want you to behold John's joy, even in his mother's womb, and how it highlights our dullness. Now, living with this kind of joy that John has here means... That you're alive to spiritual things. John heard Mary's voice. She came into the room. He heard her voice, and he started going crazy. He got in close proximity to the Lord Jesus, and it was almost as if he couldn't stop himself. He began to leap with joy, and that sounds painful too, doesn't it? I mean, moms, you've experienced that for a baby to leap with joy. You read uh, so so this this experience. Uh, for us would be something like, the a same kind of experience would be when you read God's words. You know, you, you, you go to the scriptures and you begin to read God's words, your heart begins to beat a little faster. You come into worship and sing, and it's not just words on a screen that mean nothing to you, but there's feeling, there's spiritual reality in the heart behind the things we sing. We sing Come, O Redeemer, come. And it's not just something that we're just mouthing words. We mean it. There's a longing. There's a, Yes, we need you to come, Lord Jesus. If you don't come, there's no peace. There's no hope for me. And we begin to long because it's real. That the good news is good news. Like learning your football team made it in the final four of the college, you know, playoff. Or like... Hearing from the doctor that the baby you'd hoped for and prayed for for so long was finally on its way. Or going to the doctor and hearing the news, the cancer's gone. In all of those kinds of moments, there's joy. But it's spontaneous, uncalculated, overflowing joy. Joy you don't have to think about. Joy you don't have to conjure up. It's just there. Now, John Piper who's a pastor in Minneapolis, or was, and is now retired, he talked about this kind of joy in a book that changed my life, his book Desiring God. And he said, like, he said this, he said, imagine this kind of scenario. He said, imagine that you've made it through a shipwreck or, or plane, a plane wreck, and you've made it to the life raft, and you've been floating on the sea for days without food or water, and then out of nowhere, uh, you, sp- you spot a speck of land on the horizon. He, he just asks, do you have to talk yourself into joy in that moment? Or is it just there? Do you have to say to yourself, there's land. I should really be happy about that land. Yes, I'll be happy about the land. And then happiness comes forth. Or, no, of course not. Of course not. You know this. If you've ever made the trip to the Grand Canyon, which we have not, um, but I'm under absolute obligation as the husband of my wife to get there one day with our kids. You finally come to the edge of the canyon and begin to take it all in. Do you have to work hard to produce all? I mean, do you go over to the plaque with all of the details and study it and so forth, and try to talk your, or do, you, or do you just stand there and say, "Wow," because it's so beautiful that it automatically produces wonder? Or maybe a better example: kids. Think about Christmas morning when the child opens the present that he's been hoping for for weeks and months. Does the child have to try to be joyful? No, there's just this spontaneous outburst of joy. And that is the joy of John the Baptist. To have the same joy that he has here means that you are alive with spiritual reality in your heart. You don't have to try to produce anything. It's just there. And of course, this is not our experience most of the time. I don't have to tell you that, do I? And the thing that I want to mention this morning that puts our brokenness on display more than anything else in our lives, I think, is that we can sing songs... About the greatness and the uh, the greatest and the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, and in our singing, we can be hesitant. Instead of joy, we feel well nothing. And I have people tell me all the time they read their Bible, and that's their experience. They just they don't feel anything. Their heart doesn't beat any faster. They read and they don't find any comfort. There's no voice there. Okay, Be be careful with that, but you know what I mean? There's no sense of communion with God. There's just nothing. And I want to say the problem is not the Bible. It is living and active, a two-edged sword that pierces. The scripture says the problem is us. It's that the sword begins to pierce us. And like the calluses on the end of my fingers, because of playing the guitar for so many years, you literally could jab a needle about quarter of an inch down, and I'd feel nothing. The problem is, is the sword pierces, but we're so dead, the tissue of our lives is so dead, we don't even feel it when it begins to, to slip inside and split us in two. And it was the same problem that the people of Jesus' ministry was aimed at had. Listen to what he says in Matthew 13, uh, 15. He says, these people, this is a grieving Jesus over this, these people have grown dull, with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. These are people who are listening to his sermons, but they're just words. They're not. There's no discovery for them in the things that Jesus is saying. They're watching him perform all of these amazing miracles and signs and wonders, but uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't cause any wonder or, or or awe in them. They don't feel anything. They've grown dull. They see and they hear, but none of it means anything to them at all. And Jesus is actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah to describe how, according to the prophet, this is an act of judgment. To hear, but not believe. To, to see, but not see and be moved. It's a sign that you're under judgment. And so later in this in this gospel, in chapter 24, at the very, very end of, of Luke, Jesus, after the resurrection, meets with some disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to proclaim the gospel to them, but they are full of cynicism and Doubt and unbelief given the circumstances of the weekend and Jesus' death and burial in the tomb. And, and the Lord Jesus says to them, You who, have, who are slow of heart and who fail to believe, he says. And what happens to these guys is a marvelous transformation there in Luke 24. It's meant a whole lot to me over the years as he meets with them, and at first they are what he calls slow of heart. They're literally, it means slow to the heart. It's that the spiritual things he's trying to teach them are having a hard time getting into and penetrating their heart. And then he begins to teach them, and they have a meal together, and by the time he leaves them, this radical transformation has happened. And these men who he finds on the road who are slow of heart say after he leaves, Did our hearts not burn within us? They go from being slow of heart to burning hearts. And it's been the experience of Christians throughout all the ages. Martin Luther had been lecturing on the Bible in, in in a college and even pastoring in a small church. When he finally began to understand the gospel, and he describes it in his in his uh, in his in, you know in his writings, he, he when when the when the truth of God's grace to him in Jesus Christ became began to be real. He said it was as if he was being born again and entering into paradise through open gates. I mean, his heart was flooded with peace and joy, which if you know his story, you know that before this time, that was not the case at all. He was just, he was a neurotic mess. And yet, he began, he had this discovery, and it created all this joy and peace in his life. Uh, another, John Wesley, he talks in his journals about a spiritual dullness and lack of motivation, and then one night he attended a religious gathering where they were reading, ironically, uh, Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans, and here are his words. He says, about a quarter before nine, while the man who was leading the meeting was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. It was his conversion experience. His heart caught fire. So what's the change what, for both of them? And for Christians all through the ages, what's the difference? I mean, they were both active in ministry. They were well down the road of their journey with Christ. But it wasn't real to either of them yet. They were dull. There was just nothing inside. And then something happened to them. They both had this experience where the truth of the gospel finally pierced through their calloused hearts. And it wasn't just good news. It was good news for me. And it became real and the result was that there was joy. Now, let me apply this in just a few ways before we move on to the next point of the sermon. Uh, early Christians, uh, we have a record. Early Christians, uh, centuries ago, when they were um, interviewing people for church membership, one of the requirements that the church leaders had to see in a person before they would bring them in to membership in the church was joy. Can you imagine that? Sorry, you can't be a part of our church. You don't have joy. <laughs> That's crazy. They look for joy as a sign of conversion. In church membership, because it validated the work, in their minds, it validated the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of that person. Remember, not sanguine joy, not extroverted joy, supernatural joy, despite whatever kind of person by temperament you might be. So let me just ask this. Let me ask this and apply it this way. What do you feel? Oh, this is scary. I thought this was a Presbyterian church. We don't ask this kind of questions in that, right? Not what do you know. Not what should you do, what do you feel? Is the gospel of Jesus more than just good news? Is it good news for you? Does the songs we sing and the candles we light and all, does it produce any feeling? That's where our repentance should begin, right there. We turn to him and beg him to change us. But there, so, so we see John's joy, okay? But the second thing here we, we want to keep going... And, slugging through this passage, is the second, I think we see the reason for his joy also, even in his mother's womb. And you might say, how can we possibly know what a yet-to-be-born child is thinking? Why would he leap? And of course, we can only speculate about John's psychology. And that's why we need to pay attention to the text, because from the text we can learn that John's joy, you know, you've been here the last few weeks and we've gone all through chapter 1, John's joy had to do with how his life and his purpose were uniquely tied to Jesus. His joy had to do with his mission. And he experienced it even before he was born. And so you you find in chapter 1, or excuse me, earlier in the story, right before Mary visits Elizabeth, the angel, Gabriel, comes to Mary and talks about the son that she will have. And we're told that he will be great, that he will be the son of David and even the very son of God, that this is the long-awaited Messiah who's going to be born to Mary, who will come into the world to save and rescue his people from sin and death. Earlier in the story, the same angel came to Elizabeth talk about her son and we're told that that her son would also be great but he would be great only in reference to the one who would come after him that his job john the baptist was in the words of the prophets to make ready for the lord a people prepared so john's birth even as it's foretold by the angel was significant only in the sense of the reference that it had to the birth of the one who would come after him born of mary the two of them were linked all throughout their life, and Anne Rice, who's written some pretty horrible vampire books, but has also written a couple of really, really great books about Jesus' early life, which we have no record of scripture on. Marvelous, marvelous books. She really connects how John and Jesus their whole life, there's just this sense like twins that are born that are kind of this weird twin thing going on. That that these two were linked in some mysterious way. And John is experiencing this even here in the womb. If the chief end or purpose or mission of every single one of us is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then the degree to which you are doing that in whatever you're doing is the degree to which your life will be filled with joy because your life will be right in keeping with the mission that God has given to you. John's experiencing that. And all throughout his life, he's experiencing that. But let me try to restate this in a more... Um, uh, you know, a more helpful and maybe practical way. And I'm really drawing from uh, an episode later in John's life as Jesus' ministry is beginning and his is coming to an end. Uh, in John chapter 3, it's a really great. I mean, we didn't have time to print it and all of those kinds of things, but it's a really great to help see how this relationship between these two develop as they move forward. And I want to say it this way, that joy comes from knowing that there's something bigger than you and you're a part of it, but it's not dependent upon you. Joy comes from knowing something that's bigger than you that you get to be a part of, but you, it's not dependent upon you. And child psychologists have been telling us for some time now that for children to develop and be healthy, of course, they need to know that their parents love them, but it's fascinating, an even deeper need, an even more important thing for kids, even more important than to know that they are loved is to know that their parents love one another. Why? Well, it's because we all have a deep need to belong to something bigger than ourselves, and for children, the first foundational experience of that obviously is the family and so the love of a husband and a wife for one another creates a social structure that the child gets to be a part of, but it's not dependent upon them it doesn't it, you know it, it was there before they came along. they can't mess it up there's something else that's going on, and so the child isn't responsible for keeping the family going. So it's not dependent upon their strength or their love. And so it creates a sense of belonging, but at the same time, a sense of security and rest. And that's what we all need. The joy comes from knowing that there's something bigger than you and that you belong to it. That your life is just the subplot in a much bigger drama. And in John chapter 3, this baby here, John the Baptist, his disciples come to him because he's had this ministry that's flourished all throughout the land and then Jesus is kind of ascended into his ministry and people are starting to leave John and go follow after Jesus and his disciples are very upset about this and they come to him and they say, what are we going to do? And John looks at them and he just says, he must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, guys, this is the way it's supposed to be. I've had a small part to play in a much bigger story and now it's done. It's time for me to quietly exit stage left and let the spotlight fall on him in all of his life. John was controlled by this same sense of calling. His role was to make Jesus' way ready and then fade into the background. And what's fascinating is that that here, there, anywhere you'll read in the scripture, there's no resentment, there's no hesitation. John isn't upset that he's playing second fiddle to Jesus. There's only joy. He must increase. Man, there's so much freedom in that. There's so much joy in that. It's supernatural. To be able to talk that way, to be able to celebrate the success of somebody else and not resent it. I mean, who was it that said, and I think Jeff Skipper quoted this a few weeks ago, that the, the sadness that so many secular people live with is they feel gratitude and they feel grateful, but they have no one to thank. I, mean, I can't remember exactly who said that, but it highlights the failure of secularism. The spiritual crisis of our age is that we ask the question, what's the point? And we don't have an answer. And that's not freedom. It's not what the secular th- thinkers and philosophers claim it to be. It is instead psychological torture. Our culture has lost any sense of something bigger that we can be a part of. And the result is it hasn't made us happy. It's made us miserable. Modern philosophical nihilism which tells us the universe is an accident and life doesn't hold any objective meaning and that there is no such thing as good and evil. It doesn't work. We need purpose. We need mission. And so look at John leaping in his mother's womb. Isn't it great? He must increase. I must decrease. Do you hear the must? That must is his purpose. It's John's why. It's the road to joy. But remember, joy comes from knowing that there's something bigger than you and that you get to belong to it, but it doesn't depend upon you. There is a hero, and you're not him. Because in the same scene that I quoted a minute ago, John gets out of Jesus' way, and he makes a statement that's so simple but so important that's worth meditating on for just a minute or so. He says to his followers as they come to him, he must increase, I must decrease, and he goes on to say, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. See, it's the proper order. John realizes, even here in Luke 1, he's not proclaimed as the Christ, he's proclaimed as the one who's preparing for the Christ. And that's significant. A pastor in our denomination, his name is Zach Eswine, has written a book about pastors. And uh, it's very good. And I think it applies to all of us. He says that that this is where pastors really get it wrong. We, uh, and you've got to know this about us, we're a strange group of people, we, we try to be the hero in our own stories and in everybody else's stories too. And he uses the theological categories that, that really is interesting how he does it. He talks about God's communicable and his incommunicable attributes, and you say, what in the world is that? Well, God's communicable attributes are the things about him that we share with him, and his incommunicable attributes are the things about him that are true of only of him, that only God is omnipotent, only he is omniscient, only he is omnipresent, only he can be everywhere all the time, only he knows everything, only he has the power to fix anything, and yet what we do is, well, let me just read his words. He says, Zach Eswine says, we are not infinite. We are not everywhere at once, we are not all powerful, we are not all knowing, we are not meant to try to be or to expect this of others, and this is my concern, forgetting our place as humans, and only humans, we grasp for incommunicable attributes and try to make them our own. Our worldly and church cultures often applaud this and urge us on, you can be like God. This makes us prone, especially in ministry for pastors, to try to do what only God is meant to do. And it leads us to be overcommitted and overwhelmed and eventually burned out, and there's no joy in that. So joy comes from knowing that there's something bigger than you, and you belong to it, but it doesn't depend upon you. You're not the hero. And I know this is not just a problem for pastors. You struggle with it too, whether you even realize it or not. And you want to know why I know that? The reason is, is when our first parents... Were tempted by the serpent at the very beginning in, in the Garden of Eden. The lie he told them that we're still believing to this day was, you will be like God. And we've been trying ever since. To be God. To take his place. To be omnipotent. To be omnipresent in all of these things, but not John. I am not the Christ, he says. Do You remember the lesson Moses had to learn at the beginning of his mission, if you're familiar with the Bible? When he's going to be sent into Egypt, Christian Baal, you know, the new movie that came out this weekend, when he's going to be sent by God to rescue his people and to redeem them, the lesson of the burning bush, what was God's message? God's message was, I am. And here's the thing, if he is I am, then of course that means what? I am not. And that's what Moses had to learn. Do you remember he was reluctant to go on this mission God was giving him because he didn't know if he had what... It, would take, he couldn't speak well and so forth, and so the Lord comes and says, I am. Which of course means I am not. And I have to repeat myself, I have to repeat that over and over again. I am not the Christ, I am not the solution, I am not the answer, I am not the hero. And that's where the joy comes from. That it doesn't depend upon me, that I can mess things up now and again. Isn't that good news for anybody other than me? Trust me, it's good news for this church. You're in better hands in Jesus' hands than you are in my hands. I am not the Christ. And so you know, I read this, and I just this, this text is so powerful to me. John's humility has always captured me. He's so content to give way to Jesus even here, and is leaping in his mother's womb, and his one desires to make much of Jesus. And so mission leads to humility, to discipline and self-control and so forth. And he must have learned this from his mother, Elizabeth. Because you might imagine Elizabeth, who had waited so long for a son. You might imagine she might have greeted Mary lukewarmly for fear that she might steal the spotlight from her. But there's no hint of that whatsoever. Elizabeth meets with Mary and she just begins to celebrate her and make much of her. Do you see verse 42? Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then verse 43, why has it been granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I mean, there's such humility. And what's fascinating is is Elizabeth's humility allows her to wonder at Mary. And John's humility allows him to wonder at Jesus. And that is Luke's aim in giving us these stories. That we would wonder that in Jesus Christ, God himself came into the world to be God with us. That he came to walk in our shoes. To share in our suffering. To take upon himself our curse. And to die for our sins. That he might be God for us. That he has come to offer us through the power of his resurrection. The life of the spirit. Light instead of darkness. Hope instead of hopelessness. Joy in the place of despair. And that we would wonder. At all that he has done for us. And so let me apply this to Do you wonder. Do you wonder. See, if you don't know that there's something bigger than you and you belong to it, you won't wonder. And that's the struggle for irreligious secular people. Irreligious secular people, their lives have just been devoid of wonder because they don't know there's something bigger that they get to belong to. But if you don't know that it doesn't depend upon you, if you try to play the hero, then you won't wonder either. And that's the struggle of religious people. And so watch your heart for wanting to be the hero, for resenting everybody who outshines you and so forth. It'll rob you of your capacity to wonder, and that will leave you with no joy. Joy comes from wondering, and we were made. We were made for that kind of joy. So, the joy of John the Baptist sleeping in his mother's womb, and some of the reasons for it. But lastly, and let's just finish with this, how do we get it? How can we get it? And here's, here's how I want to end. It's kind of the lesson for the day, if you would, if you would. and I want to say it this way. You... You catch joy, you don't conjure it. You catch it, you don't conjure it. That's really the lesson. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You catch joy, you don't conjure it. And it's what C.S. Lewis wrote about in his chapter in Mere Christianity, which he called the good infection. Very, very powerful words. He says, good things, as well as bad, as bad things, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy and power and peace and eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Joy, Lewis goes on to say, is not a sort of prize which God could if he chose just hand out to anyone. Joy is a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. And if you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you will remain dry. So I have two points of application, and then I'm done. And I think they're from the text. And the first is, if you want joy, do you want joy? If you want joy, get close to Jesus. It's when John got in close proximity to Jesus that he comes alive with joy. So how do you get close to Jesus? I mean, First Peter one eight says... Though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. The glory of the joy is is that we can't see him, we can't touch him. He's not here for us to lay our hands on or lay our eyes on. And yet, even in, in his being away from us for a time, we can still experience intimacy and communion with him. But how? And the answer the church has given consistently throughout the centuries is to practice what we call the means of grace both the corporate and private, corporate, public worship and the sacraments, which we're going to celebrate this morning, and the assembling of yourselves together with other believers and community groups or whatever it might be, and private disciplines like reading the scriptures and prayer and family worship and all of these kinds of things, which are the very means by which we enjoy and experience communion with God through the Holy Spirit. And so the command is take time. Take time for spiritual things, particularly this part of the year. Slow down. Don't miss out on worship services. Don't allow your life to get so crazy that you're not able to be here on Sundays. Not because it's some legalistic rule that if you don't follow, God's going to come and smack you in the head. No. It's a humble realization that corporate worship and community groups and personal Bible reading and all these other aspects of our life together are the Holy Spirit splash zones. That's a cheesy analogy, but do you remember? Do you remember going to do you remember going to SeaWorld as kids? We're all most of us are local. You go to SeaWorld and it's a hot day in the middle of July, and it's 98 degrees, and the thing you want more than anything else is to get showered by Shamu, right? But if you want to get wet, what happens if you sit in the 35th row? Not going to happen. There's a splash zone. Sit in the splash zone. This is the splash zone, right? This table, I know it's cheesy, bear with me. This table, this table is the splash zone. If you need to get wet, go to the places where God has said, that's where I'll anoint you. That's how you stay close to him. Not as legalistic rules that if you follow, God will bless you, and if you don't, he'll smite you, but as a humble realization that we need to be in the way of his working. But secondly, not only get close to him, but get close to those who are close to him. You want joy? Get close to those who are close to Jesus. Look at the text. In the text, both Elizabeth and Mary catch their joy. They don't conjure it. It's fascinating. Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, and the baby leapt in her womb, and then she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then she began to sing for joy. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It was John's joy that awoke her joy. We might say, as Jonathan said a minute ago, that John's joy evangelized her. She experienced his joy, and it woke her to the spiritual truth of what was happening around her that she was a part of. Now, same thing with Mary. If you, if you ha- I mean, it's good to have a Bible, even though we print everything for you, because in your Bible you would see that after the angel's message to Mary, she's obedient but still full of uncertainty and fear. She hears of Elizabeth's pregnancy. She goes to see her friend, her cousin. And it's after her visit with Elizabeth that she begins to sing her Magnificat in verse 46. So it was Elizabeth's joy and her singing Elizabeth begins to sing to Mary and hail her. And it's Elizabeth's song that sets Mary to singing too. So do you, see, do you see the application? John's joy in his mother's womb sets off a chain reaction of joy. Elizabeth caught it from him. Mary caught it from her. And so on and so on. And that's C.S. Lewis's point, point. And it's the teaching of this text. You catch joy. You don't conjure it. It's a work of God's spirit. And so... It's a great admonition to me, to us, because it helps me understand the power that we have in other people's lives, especially for me, my wife, and children. Ashley's so helpful to me uh, because she's so good. She's so consistent in reminding me that the bad attitude I'm so upset with in my children, they got from me. (laughs) And it's humbling to realize how my mood can set the tone for my entire family true dads it's true husbands I don't want it to be that way but it is and so I have to stay close to Jesus but it's also an encouragement it's an encouragement you've heard I'm sure the old adage that says the books you read and the people you spend time with will shape the person you become in five years Uh, Jim Rohn has famously said you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with and so every year, um, every year we pray like crazy our kids don't get sick around the holidays because, listen, in, our, in, in the per, the one side of our family, uh, you, you kids get sick, and you're uninvited to Christmas, okay? Because we avoid people who are sick because we don't want to catch their sickness. But I got to thinking, and be careful with this next statement, but if we avoid people who are sick because we don't want to catch their sickness, why don't we avoid people who are joyless because we're afraid of catching their joylessness? Now, please, don't. You still have to love people who are hard in your life, okay, including me. I will have no friends if we make that a rule. So don't don't go crazy, but I just wonder, you know, I wonder. If the people you spend the most time with have an enormous formative power over the type of person you're becoming, then if you want to be a person of joy, stay close to people who are close to him. Listen, warm your cold heart at the fire of someone else's joy. It's the only way. That's Christian community. Warm your unbelief, warm your hard heart at the fire of somebody else's joy. If you want joy, you have to stay close to joyful people. And eventually, eventually, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll catch it from them. John Newton, uh, who we know for amazing grace, has written another hymn. That speaks of this joy and hear his words, and then we'll come to the table this morning. Joy, he writes, is a fruit that will not grow in nature's barren soil. All we can boast till Christ we know is vanity and toil. But where the Lord has planted grace and made his glories known, there fruits of heavenly joy and peace are found, and there alone. A bleeding Savior seen by faith, a sense of pardoning love, a hope that triumphs over death, gives joys like those above. And so let's pray as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord this morning. Father, thank you for the promise of this verse, that just like the tiny baby John in his mother's womb who leapt for joy, that you could so work in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would come where we might be dead and, and, and full of unbelief, where, there, where we might long to have joy but we can't seem to find any. There's melancholy instead. Uh, where our hearts, we can't shake off the dullness and the unfeeling of our hearts that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit in the same way that you raised the dead to life, that you could come into our deadness and you could put a spark of joy. Father, we long for that. And so come and do that great work in us. Send your gospel now, the sword of the Spirit, and sharpen it with our prayers to pierce through the callousness of our hearts that we might be torn into by it, that you might restore us, and that we might be a people with enough mirth, were it to gush forth from us, it would set an entire city to laughing and celebrating you. Oh, Father, come help us to celebrate you with all of our hearts, that we would not be a people who worship you, but our hearts be far from you, but even now that we would draw near to you, and that we would warm our cold hearts at the fire of your great love for us. We pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In light of all that we celebrate this time of year, we are not left to wonder uh, about God's love for us, but indeed what Jesus said in John 15, that we can abide in it because it has been so decisively proven uh, to us that in the coming of Jesus Christ, God's love is pierced through the darkness of our world to come. His light has shone. We need not worry about uh, the Father's disposition towards us because it is uh, he is for us in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of this meal, and that's the promise of the words of this benediction, that as I speak these words over you, they are the Father's heart for you so that you might go now into the world and the mission that he's called you to, full of his favor and his grace and all of the resources that you need to accomplish the things that he sends you to do. And so receive the promise of this benediction, may it rest upon your heart. May you abide in his love so that your joy may be full because that is the fuel that you'll need uh, this week, and it's what I need as well. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Both now and forevermore. Go in his peace.